In those days there was a girl called Harver, fostered by the local Jarl or Lord. Harver was unlike other girls, for she loved hunting and fighting and all things manly. Out of my way, she barked, shoving aside a slave with the poor fortune of standing in her path. Then the slave said to her, Your only wish is to the devil, Harver, and an evil is to be expected from you. The Jarl forbids everyone to speak to you of your parentage, because he's ashamed that you should know of it. For the basest surf lay with his daughter, you are their child. Harver, surf spawn. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Herva was enraged at these words, and she went at once to her foster father, the Jarl, and said to him, Little could I glory in my lofty name, though Frothmar's favor was found by my mother. I thought I had a hero for a father. But now I am told that he tended the swine. The Jarl answered, Oh, a lie has been told you with little substance. High among heroes men held your father. Angantyr's hall with earth sprinkled stands on Samsu's southern border. It's true. Yes. Then Harver was filled with longing to reclaim the heritage of her true lineage and all her rightful inheritance, including a certain sword imbued with powerful magic. And so she bound up her hair like a man and demanded a cloak and kirtle of armor and said to her foster mother, As quick as you can, equip me in all ways, wisest of women, as you would your son. Dreams has told me the truth only. No contentment shall I taste here now. Then she took up the masculine form of her name, Hervarth, went raiding as a Viking, and gathered followers till at last she set sail for the island where lay the burial mound of her dead father, Angantyr, whose corpse guards the magical blade, Turfing, which, unbeknownst to her, is cursed to doom its wielder. Thus goes the tale of Hervar, a Viking shield maiden. Now you might be familiar with the figure of the shield maiden from the History Channel series Vikings. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's great. I, I freaking love it. But is it accurate? Well, I mean, to watch the show, you would think you couldn't toss a cup in a mead hall without hitting a shield maiden. And nearly every woman seems capable with a sword, no matter how petite her figure or how slender her wrists. Yeah, so that's fun to watch, and it definitely fits our values today, but is it accurate? Well, I mean, no, not really. But it's not entirely inaccurate, either. Here's the thing. There were actually women in the Viking world who took up arms. There are numerous references and stories of individual Viking women taking up arms, perhaps more often than in other contemporary cultures, and those stories include that of Hervarth, of whom we just heard and will hear much more today. Warrior women were not common, but they did probably exist, and they went against the gender norms of their day. Such brave swordswomen were, in fact, genderbenders. They were the genderbenders of their day, and perhaps some of them may even have been what we would today call transgender. We'll hear one story today where that may well have been the case. But to say the least, these women rocked the longboat of their day's norms. 
Now this is the first of a two-part series. Today we'll hear about shield maidens, but they weren't the only gender benders of the Viking world. There were the warrior women, but there were also the Sathe mother or witch men, which we will hear about next time. Now together these two, the warrior women and the witch men, turned the Viking world on its head. They were the unvikings, if you will. They're the ones who flouted norms, they bucked expectations, and risked ridicule in order to follow their paths. They were the other side of Viking culture, the one that you almost never get to hear about, or not accurately at any rate. These were the Viking genderbenders, and today we're going to hear all about the women who lived and died by the sword, the dreaded shield maidens. That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is The History of Sex. The History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new patron, Catherine Schrader, for making this episode possible. Today we're starting our two-part series on Viking genderbenders, and what I mean by genderbending is something that straddles a vague gray area between cisgender and transgender. Now, just to review, cisgender is when the gender you identify with is the same as the one assigned to you at birth, and transgender is where that's different. And these are, of course, very modern concepts. Even if there have always been people all throughout history who didn't fit the neat boxes provided them by their societies, they didn't necessarily have the conceptual categories that we use today. In Viking Scandinavia, there were likely people that we would recognize as transgender today, but the Vikings themselves had no such concept, nor did the neighbor peoples who wrote about them. And consequently, it's never clear exactly how our modern categories map onto theirs, if at all. You usually can't tell clearly if a given character in a saga is flouting norms in order to express something intrinsic to their identity, or just trying to gain access to a different gender, social sphere, and all the powers and privileges associated with it. In most cases, it does usually appear more like the latter, you know, gaining access to a different social sphere. So I have generally chosen to characterize this as the more nebulous in-between category of gender bending. I do use she-her pronouns for those assigned sex as female by their contemporaries, and I use he-him for those assigned male. But please understand that it's really anyone's call here. Some of these individuals could have been what we would call transgender. So this is a history that straddles cis and transgender dynamics. I also want to note at the start here that this series is an expansion of something started on my other show, Dead Ideas, in our series on Viking Berserkers, which I recommend you also check out if you want to know more. But I always wanted to return to that and go deeper, and especially to explore the male witches part more deeply, so I'm rebooting that 
here in this two-part series, adding more information and a whole lot more in terms of audio drama bells and whistles, which you'll get plenty of today. And finally, just a last note, that I am using reconstructed Old Norse pronunciation here. A great source for that is the YouTube videos of Professor of Old Norse, Dr. Jackson Crawford. He's kind of a fun guy. He has this cowboy swagger that somehow fits with Viking sensibilities, and he has this deep, handsome voice to boot, so if you're the type to crush on nerds, he might very well be your next prof throb. You've been warned. Anyway, enough about that stuff. Let's get to the show. So today we're talking about Viking warrior women. Alright, so in order to understand these gender benders, we first have to get an idea of Viking gender in general. So let's start there. Just a super brief idea of what Viking gender was like. So we're talking about the early medieval period around 800 to 1000 CE in Scandinavia, and this was a place where women could be quite assertive, but it was by no means a paradise of equality. It was one of those situations where, you know, it's the most patriarchal culture other than all the other cultures around it. Perhaps with the exception of medieval Ireland, where women were also quite empowered, but only relative to the other cultures around them. You know, slightly better prospects for women in these places. And in both of these places, Scandinavia and Ireland, you know, it was still very much a male-dominated patriarchal culture. And in the Scandinavian case, which obviously we're focusing on today, that is no better illustrated than by the story of Queen Gunhild and Hrut. I love this story. So Queen Gunhild was mother of the king of Norway. And when she hears of the arrival of a comely lad from Iceland named Hrut, Hrut, she persuades the king to make him part of his retinue of warriors. And then after that, well, she pretty much makes him her boy toy. After a time, though, Hrut longs to return to Iceland, where, turns out, he actually kind of has a fiancé waiting back there for him. And this makes Gunnhild jealous. Hrut. She curses him to never be able to achieve sexual satisfaction with his fiancé. Then, when Hrut returns to Iceland, he finds this curse fulfilled but in a way that's kind of characteristic for Viking masculinity, he discovers that his cock is now too big to have sex with his fiancée. <laughs> that kind of really says it about Viking masculinity. He's not impotent, he's too big. There you go. Okay, now mind you that this is from the sagas, and these sagas were written late, after the Christian conversion, they can be quite bombastic, as we see here. So these aren't exactly perfect reflections of reality. And that caveat goes for pretty much all of our sources today, since the Viking themselves left precious little in the way of writing. So 
we're kind of limited in what we can go on. But by analyzing across all the different sources, scholars have come to some fairly confident approximations of Viking culture. And in this story, we do get a hint at their gender dynamics. And we're just going to make three super brief observations here. First, the female lead here, Gunhild, is quite assertive. That is historically accurate. Women often goaded their husbands into fights or wars, whether for their own honor or for other motives. They were not meek. When men were off traveling, trading, or raiding, it was up to women to take charge, and they did. The head lady of a typical household wore the keys to the house around her waist, almost like a badge of office, and you kind of have to imagine a certain swagger of pride as those keys jingle jangled, you know, just as you see Queen Gunhild acting quite imperiously here. So women in the Viking world were not meek. But, as we see here, Gunhild still is subordinate to the king. She doesn't rule in her own right and has to persuade her son, the king, to do her bidding. She is clearly comfortable tugging those reins, but it's ultimately a patriarchal society. Okay, so that's point number one. Point number two, it's no coincidence that the warrior of the two here is Hrut. Gunhild pretty much just assumes that he's going to have warrior training, which he does. And that was the norm, at least for the aristocratic elite in the society. But maybe also for commoners to some extent as well. And even for those who didn't have actual warrior training, there was still something of that warrior ideal. Just as, you know, all Americans have something of the cowboy at heart, and all Japanese have something of the samurai at heart. All Viking men had something of the warrior at heart, as an ideal, if not as an actual reality of the skills that they had. It was a quintessential part of Viking manliness. Meanwhile, it was not the norm for women to have that kind of warrior training. It happened, but it was not the norm. Gunhild's name here literally means war battle, but she is not the warrior in this story. Women were more concerned with things like spinning, weaving, cooking, and maintaining the home. They did do a fair amount of hard physical labor, like chopping wood, for example, but they didn't typically learn the warrior arts. But there was something special that they did sometimes learn, which brings us to our third and final point. It's no coincidence that the magician of the two here in this story is Gunhild. Magic was a woman's art. Now, it's hard to say how much the average woman delved into this. I imagine it was fairly common to know at least a few minor folk spells or herbal remedies. You know, the kind of thing like little Rolf falls into a patch of poison ivy and you know the words to chant over it to make the itching go away. That kind of thing. Greater sorcery, yeah, that was probably less common. But when it was practiced, it was almost always by a woman, because sorcery was seen as specifically unmanly. If Hrut had cursed Gunhild instead of the other way around, it would have been a very different story. And that is what we're really going to get into next time when we talk about the witch men, the male sorcerers. So we'll leave it there. But I'll just put that out there as a teaser that there was a whole lot of gender dynamics going on around magic that kind of worked complementary to what we're talking about today, but on the other side of the coin for males. So to sum up that third point, magic is a woman's art. 
it's no surprise that the one using it in this story is Gunhild and not Groot. Okay, so that is the quick and dirty on gender dynamics in the Viking world. Because as progressive as medieval Scandinavians might appear next to their neighbors, they were still pretty patriarchal by our standards today. Men were the warriors, women were the sorcerers, if anyone was going to be one, and that was just what you had on tap at your typical mead hall. However, there were plenty who spit out that mead. So now, let's turn to those women who took those norms and bent them. The Skjaldmar, or Shield Maiden, is a popular image in modern media depictions. Again, we mentioned the show Vikings. The most famous Shield Maiden on that show is Lagatha, and there really is a Lagatha in the sources. Actually, her name is Ladgertha, which is super hard to say, so I'm just going to stick with Lagatha. But there was a Lagatha. According to legend, the king of Norway defeated the king of Sweden, and as an ultimate insult, he put all his female kinsfolk, including Lagatha, into a brothel. Now, this infuriated the deposed king's grandson, Ragnar, and when the women who were now in the brothel heard that Ragnar was coming to take revenge, they said, that's it. We're putting on men's attire, and we are going to join him in the fight. We prefer to die in battle rather than suffer any more of this dishonor. And so they fight. And Lagatha proves herself a well-trained warrior on the battlefield. She didn't learn the sword in a weekend right? This long predated her going into the brothel. So Lagatha proves herself a well-trained warrior on the battlefield, so much so that Ragnar actually tells his men that if not for her, they would not have won. He credits their victory to her, and he actually falls in love with her, and he woos her, and then there's this kind of fairy tale-esque part of the story where she puts these fabulous beasts in his path that he has to defeat in order to win her hand, and yada yada yada. But the point is that in this story she is portrayed as a skilled warrior woman who leads a company of women who also take up arms. So the shield maiden Lagatha is actually historical. Good job, History Channel, you actually got one for a change, at least insofar as we can trust our sources. So here's the point where we do our little dance around the caveats, okay? Unfortunately, as previously mentioned, our sources are a bit dubious, but dubious in an interesting way. Check it out. Most of our stories of warrior women come from the Gesta Denorum, or the History of the Danes, written by Christian monk Saxo Grammaticus in the 12th century. Now that's a hundred or so years after the end of the Viking Age, and well into the Christian period. So there's plenty of reason for skepticism there. Furthermore, the word Skjaldmar, or shield maiden, is very rare in the Old Norse sources, showing up in Arrowhead Saga and very few other sources. Shield maidens may have been no more historical than Amazons. In other words, not at all. That said, I don't know about that. There is enough evidence not to dismiss this out of hand. First, one source, Hervarth Saga, which was at the beginning of this episode, despite being written down quite late, appears to include poetic portions composed 
much earlier, possibly during the actual Viking Age itself. So that's interesting. Second, the Romans, and the Romans, of course, were long before the Vikings, but check it out. The Romans report warrior women among other Germanic peoples that preceded the Vikings, such as the Goths, Cimbri, and Marcomanni. So there may have been a Northern European precedent to go on. Third, the 11th century Byzantine historian John Skylitzes reports women found among the slain in several battles against Vikings of the Kievan Rus. The Rus were descendants of Vikings who went east rather than west. And finally, a burial excavated at Birka in Sweden, complete with weapons and long thought to be an archetypal example of a Viking warrior's grave, turned out to be the grave of a woman. Yeah. Now, there are still reasons to be skeptical of that grave. There's a whole bunch of controversies still going on about that. But you add all this stuff up, and more and more things are pointing to the possibility that there really were warrior women in medieval Scandinavia. Enough that I feel confident in saying that, yeah, this was likely the case. I don't think that they were as common as in the show Vikings, but I do think that we can say that there were individual women in numerous different cases that come down to us today that probably did take up arms. Now, what those women were not was common. They were the exceptions to the rule. They bucked the norms. They were gender benders. Now, interestingly, that gender bending comes across to us very differently today than it would have at the time that these stories were being written down. It is a bit of historical irony that our best source for stories of such women, the Gesta Denorum mentioned earlier, may actually have been intended as an attack against these women and their culture. Because, you know, when we read these stories from a 21st century perspective, we're like, right on, girls rock, right? But that's not what they would have been thinking from a 12th century Christian perspective. When they read these same stories, they would have been like, ooh, they let their women fight? How barbaric, gross. In other words, by including these stories of warrior women, Saxo Grammaticus may actually have intended to smear these pagans as backwards and uncouth. So that's what I mean by dubious but in an interesting way. Thank the gods of history that he did try to smear them, if that's what he did, because otherwise we would never have known about so many of these women. So who were these warrior women? Well, we're going to hear all about them in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Ever wanted to meet your favorite educational podcasters and YouTubers and pick their brains? Well, you can. The Intelligent Speech Conference is back. By any means necessary. When Napoleon led Boulogne for a year... Zachary Davis, Jane Redfern, Benjamin Jacobs, I'm Eric Marcus, Dan McManamy, Brian I, Bree, Rudyard Lynch, Susan Archery, Alex Clifford, BT Newberg, Raven Forrest, Rescalzo, Stephen Guerra, Elsine Chris, David Crowther, and I, Liz Covard, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. This will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners. This year's Intelligent Speech Conference will be held on Saturday, April 24th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, or for our friends across the Atlantic, 
3 p.m. London time. Tickets will be $30, but are available for only $20 as an early bird special. You can get them online at intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop. Intelligent speech is virtual this year due to the pandemic, which means you need not travel further than your living room to hobnob with your favorite creators. And you can show up in your pajamas. What's better than that? Well, how about 10% off your tickets, which you can get with our promo code SEX. That's right, S-E-X. You won't forget that one, will you? Just go to intelligentspeechconference.com and use our promo code SEX to get 10% off your tickets today. And now, the history of sex presents this. Hail, Shield Maiden. Welcome to Aggressive Insurance. I am Fro. Fro? Yeah, Fro from Aggressive Insurance. Ah, you're like the... Right, I get it. Yeah, did you find your rating insurance policy okay? I did. I saved over 300 silver pieces in a Saxon slave. We have a savings of over 300 silver pieces and a Saxon slave. 300 silver pieces and a Saxon slave. You know that comes with a free dismemberment policy. You mean accidental death and dismemberment policy. No, I mean dismemberment. Do you do a lot of dismembering? I do. Well, it's free of charge. Wow. Wow, I know. I say it louder. Have a great day. Lots of extra features that don't cost you extra. Now that's aggressive. Call or send a runestone today. All right, we're back. So as we just heard, the Christian authors who wrote about shield maidens may well have been doing so in order to smear the pagan Norse as barbaric and, you know, backwards. Which, I mean, if you're going to smear someone as barbaric, I would think that um, the raping and pillaging would probably be more than sufficient. But hey, that's just me. So anyway, again, I'm just grateful that they wrote them down at all, because otherwise we wouldn't have so many references and stories of these women. So let's turn to those references and stories now. First, a few of the shorter references. There was Kohler's sister Sela, for example, which the Gesta Denorum describes as a skilled warrior and experienced in roving. Now, by roving, what he means is going a Viking, because Even though today we use the term Viking as a noun for the general culture, it was actually a verb. It was a thing that you did. You went a Viking, meaning you went raiding. So this Sela, we hear, was experienced at going a Viking, just like her male counterparts. Then there was Stikla, who withdrew from her country to save her chastity, preferring the occupations of war to those of wedlock. And here I have to read, save her chastity, as meaning she chose that life over marriage rather than she actually held celibate or something. You know, celibacy and women's chastity as a virtue was much more of a Christian thing than it was a Norse thing. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that this stikla would pass up a fine piece of tail, you know, if she was offered it. Another warrior woman was Rusila, the red girl, who Saxo Grammaticus says led a group of Vikings terrorizing Ireland. And it's noteworthy here that she doesn't just go a Viking, she leads. Nor is there any mention that she was only leading other women, like some kind of girls league or something. No, she was most likely leading men. Then, There is Alfhild, who has a bit more meat to her story. As for its believability, well, you can decide. But the story, as Saxo tells it, is she falls head over heels for a boy, but when she learns from her mother that her crush might only want what's between a girl's legs, 
She rejects girlhood altogether, takes up arms, and goes raiding. And she is successful as a Viking warrior and rises to captaining a ship, another leader. Later, she just happens to end up in battle against her former crush. Her helmet falls off, revealing her identity. They kiss, and then there's a rather trite happily ever after love story ending. Now, rounding out the references from the Gesta Denorum, Saxo Grammaticus tells us of three female ship captains, Hatha, Visna, and Vigbjorg. And in the case of Vigbjorg, it specifically says that she was attended by Bo and Brat the Ute, which are both male names. So here again, we see even more clearly that these women were leaders, not just leaders of women, but leaders full stop. Men were willing to serve under women if those women earned their respect through martial skill. Nor were these women treated daintily in battle, either. These three women just mentioned, they're not treated gently. In the Battle of Bravila, Hetha was placed on the right flank, serving to protect the rest of the army. That's a very important strategic position to put someone. Visna was made standard-bearer, Again, a highly prestigious position, and she gets her hand struck off, but she grits and bears it, and would later go on to become Queen of Zealand. Meanwhile, Vigbjorg gains a still more glorious fate, felling an enemy champion before being slain herself by an arrow. So that is quite a few examples right there of women warriors. That's eight examples just in the Gesta Denorum. Plus, then there's the followers of Lagatha, if you want to count them as well. That's quite a lot, right? Now, beyond the Gesta Denorum, there are a few other sources as well where we see warrior women. One is Brynhild from the saga of the Volsungs, which is the original story dramatized by Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. That's the one, you know, from Apocalypse Now that's like bum, 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 bum. But that's a story that is well and truly into the fantastical. I mean, a guy actually slays a dragon for crying out loud, so we're pretty much in Lord of the Rings territory here. and probably shouldn't read too much historicity into that one, but perhaps it is worth noting that Brynhild herself is a Valkyrie, which is one of the mythical choosers of the slain on the battlefield in Norse mythology, and these women are depicted as warriors. Now, just because a thing is reflected in myth does not at all mean that it is going to be found in the society that believes in that myth, but it is worth noting that Norse people had that image of the female warrior in their minds as part of their cognitive categories, thanks to the Valkyries. They saw it in myth so they could think it in reality, and if it happened in real life for them, they'd be like, oh, I understand. That's just like the Valkyries. So it is significant in that sense. Now there's another saga with a different Brynhild. I know, let's make it even more confusing, right? Okay, a different Brynhild, not a Valkyrie. We're back in the realm of mortal beings now. In the saga of Bosi and Herald, this woman was known as Bogu Brynhild, which means stunt Brynhild because she was maimed in a duel. Stunt like stunted, I guess. So that's badass. And last but not least, among the stories of which I am aware, there is 
probably my favorite. There is the story of Thornbjörg, or Thorberger. Now, this person has two names for a reason that will become obvious in just a second. This is from the saga of Hrolf Gautrexen, and I'm going to go a little deeper into this story because this one stands out to me. Let's see if it does to you as well. So, in Uppsala, in Sweden, the king had only one child, named Thornbjörg. Now, that's a feminine name, but to the king's dismay, this Thornbjörg loved to fight and act manly and insisted against being called a virgin or womanly and demanded to be called by the more masculine name Thorberger. Are you picking up on the difference here? This story, out of all the stories that we've heard so far, seems like a more likely candidate for someone who really might have been what we would today call transgender. Seems so to me. There's this sense of gender contrary to the one imposed by family, seeming to emerge from within and very much bound up with identity. It doesn't seem, in this case, like putting on men's clothes in order to gain access to the male sphere. It really does seem, to me, like this person identified deep down as a man. Again, if this story is even accurate, but let's assume that it is, this seems like a good candidate for a Viking transgender person, or what we would call transgender today. Now, of course, those writing down this story did not have our modern concept of transgender, and certainly did not have our conventions around pronoun use. It's mostly she and woman and queen in this story, but there are actually a few points in the saga where they use the words King Thorberger, so you can actually see an acknowledgement, even within the narrative of the story in its own historical context, that something special was going on here in this story. Again, written late by Christian Hands, and it may very well be another attempt at smearing the backwards Norse, but here it is nonetheless. Now, the end of the story is a bit, well, <laughs> make of it what you will, let's say that. The quote-unquote hero of the story, Hrolf, a man, comes to woo Thorberger. And Thorberger takes such offense at being treated as a woman that Thorberger six warriors on him, and Hrolf has to basically hightail it out of there. He flees for his life. Later, after he'd become a little more famous from raiding, he, he figures maybe he's got a better chance now. So he tries again. And Thorberger says, I'd rather be a shepherd than marry you. And then there's this fight between their warriors in which Thorberger is captured. And finally, Thorberger falls in love with Hrolf, consents to marry him, gives up weapons, and takes up embroidery. Hmm. <laughs> right, so that last bit, well, again, the story is a product of its time, right? Perhaps the Christian saga author felt the need to tame, quote-unquote, this wild creature, or show the proper, quote-unquote, role of a woman, or fulfill the fairy tale trope of winning the woman after doing great deeds. It's entirely possible that this ending is a late invention fabricated by the Christian authors. But there is another way to read this. It's possible that this reflects actual Viking values if Thorberger's consent to marry at last is seen as an acceptance of the duty to carry on the family line, which was a big deal for the Norse. There are many unsavory words in the Old Norse sources for people who refuse to do their familial duty here. For both men and women, it's not one way or the other. 
it was looked on quite negatively to not have children or refuse to get married for that reason. Because if you didn't have children, then lands and property could be lost to the family, and so it was very important. So it's at least possible that this is what was going on in the mind and the heart of Thorberger in this story. Never mind. Never mind Hrolf. He's just some schmuck, right? I choose to see this as more of an arc in Thorberger's character. Because frankly, Thorberger seems far too headstrong to simply knuckle under at the end. That doesn't seem realistic to me. But Thorberger may have been going through an internal struggle of sorts, weighing the need for an authentic gender identity against the need to be loyal to family and do that duty, and then make a mature decision. Now, maybe it's not the decision that we would have rooted for today, but again, different times, different values. This was not an individualistic culture like we have today. Family was very important back then. And in this case, it appears that Thorberger chose family. That's one way to read it. That's the way I choose to read it. You can make your own decision. And I think that that kind of encapsulates the whole approach that we can take to warrior women in general here. Are the sources perfect reflections of reality? No. Do we know for sure that these women existed and fought and took up arms? No. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest they did, and that's enough for me to say that these Viking individuals rocked. And on that note, we will bring to a close this discussion of Viking warrior women. These were the shield maidens, the warrior women of Viking Scandinavia, who in at least some cases may not have been women at all, but were, as we might understand today, in fact, men. They defied the gender expectations of their society because, despite these numerous stories of female fighters, Norse culture was by no means equal for men and women. It was absolutely a patriarchal culture of male dominance. But it was a place where women could push the envelope perhaps a little further than in neighboring societies. And when they did, it was gender-bending. The shield maiden, or warrior woman, who took up arms was entering the masculine sphere of war. But she could, and sometimes did, win respect, honor, and glory. Now, whether some of these warrior women were anything close to what we would today call transgender individuals is, as we've seen, hard to elucidate, but I believe at least some cases may have existed where these ways of life provided a means of expression for those who felt a deep-down identity at odds with that cast upon them by society. Now, to finish out this episode, as promised, let's conclude with the end of the story of the shield maiden Hervarth with which we began this episode. And by the way, the translation that we are using for this saga was actually done by Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, who was himself inspired by this very saga, among others, to write his Middle-earth series. And although the saga was composed in the 13th century, the verses that we will be quoting here are thought by Tolkien's son to be much earlier, possibly during the actual Viking Age itself. Also, I should note that there's a little confusion about names here. This shield maiden has been going by the masculine form of her name, Hervarth, which is also the name of one of her father's fallen berserker warriors. Again, throwing in extra names. Let's just make it more confusing. Come on. 
<laughs> but that's what's in the text, so that's what we have to go with. And to make it even more confusing, when she confronts the ghost of her father in this story, because, oh yes, there's a ghost in this story. When she confronts the ghost of her father, she reverts to the feminine form of her name. Maybe so that he will recognize her? I don't know. But she does. That's not a choice I made. That's actually what's in the text. She goes by the feminine version of her name in this portion of the story. Okay. <laughs> With no further ado, the conclusion to the story of Hervarth. Hervarth, once the girl Herva, had become a great Viking raider, captaining a ship with men under her command. At last she felt ready to face the ghost of her true father, Angantyr. Buried he lay on the Isle of Samso, site of a great battle wherein he and his berserkers had fallen. And with him was buried the magical blade, Turfing. Now, this blade, it was said, could cut through anything like cloth, and every blow struck dealt death. The thought of it set Harver's heart ablaze, and so she sailed to claim as her birthright this mighty weapon, which unbeknownst to her is cursed, to bring doom upon its wielder. As they approach the isle at dusk, the men glimpse the many burial mounds of warriors fallen in battle there and take to fear, refusing to go ashore. Nope. Mm -mm. Yeah, we're good here. We'll mind the boats. Somebody has to count the oars. <sighs> and so Hervard alone lands upon the shore of the Isle of the Dead, chill waves lapping at her heels in an eerie silence affronting her ears. A shepherd, chancing by, warns her to turn back. Fool, I call him who fares onward. But she presses on. Amidst the maze of barrows, she glimpses above one fire, burning mysteriously. According to Viking lore, a sign of treasure buried below. Then, standing at the foot of the mound, she raised her arms and spoke. Wake, Anguntia. Wakes you, Herver, Swafa's offspring, your only daughter. The keen-edged blade from the barrow, give me. The sword dwarf smithied for Sigalami. And brazenly she calls upon the names of the slain. Hervard, Hjorvard, Hrani Angantir, from the roots of the tree I arouse you all. With helm and corslet, keen-edged weapon, gear and buckler and graven spear... All but to dust have Angrim's children, men of evil in the mound, been turned. If of Ephora's son, no single one to me will speak in Munafar. Hervard, Hervard, Rani, Anguntir, may it seem to you all within your ribs, as if in Mound of Maggots you've moulded away if you fetch not the sword forged by Tvalin. It becomes not ghosts' costly arms to bear. Then Anguntir answered her, why do you hail me, Herva, daughter? To your doom you are faring filled with evil. Mad you are now, your mind darkened when with its wandering you wake the dead. 
No father or kinsman in Cairn laid me. They kept turfing the two survivors. One alone did wielded after. But she was not fooled. You give me a lie. May the god let you rest whole in your how if you're not holding turfing with you. Unwilling you are to give the heirloom to your only child. Then the barrow opened, and it was as if the whole mound were fire and flame. Hell's gate is lifted, howls are opening. The aisles poured a place before you, grim outside now to gaze around you. To your ships if you can, quick now, maiden. But she answered, No place can you light burning in darkness that your funeral fire should with fear daunt me. Unmoved shall remain the maiden's spirit, though she gaze on a ghost in the grave door standing. I tell you, have I hear my words out, what shall come to pass, prince's daughter. Trust what I tell you, Tiafeng, daughter, shall be ruin and end of all your family. You shall bear offspring, who in after days shall wield Tiafeng, and trust in his strength. By the name Hatherick, known to the people, born the strongest beneath the sun's garden. A human indeed I was held to be, ere I came hither your hall seeking. Hater of mail coats from the mound, give me! Pair of the buckler's bane of Yalmar. Beneath my back is laid the bane of Yalmar, all around it enwrapped with fire. In the wild walking, no woman know I who would dare in her hand hold this sword. I will guard it and grasp it in hand. The keen-edged sword can I but obtain it. No fear have I of the fire burning. The flame grows less as I look towards it. Fool you are, ever, and your heart's daring, with eyes open to enter the fire. The blade from the barrow I will bring, rather. Oh, young maiden, I may not refuse you. And he produced the magical blade and placed it in her hands. <sighs> Son of warriors, you do, do well in this the blade to me from the barrel yielding. King to keep it, I count it dearer than were all of Norway beneath my hand. You see it not. You're in speech a cursed woman of evil. Why, you're rejoicing. Trust what I tell you. Tearfing daughter shall be ruined and end of all your family. I will, I will go my way to the wave horses. Chieftain's daughter, cheerful hearted. <laughs> I care not at all, O oh, King's companion, how my son shall strive hereafter. <laughs> you shall keep turfing with contentment long. The bane of Yalmar and hiding keep touch not the edges. In each is poison, worse than deadly doom-bringer to men. Farewell, daughter. Fain would I give you twelve heroes' lives. Trust what I tell you, the goodly strength and strong endurance that Armgrim's sons left after them. May you all lie unharmed in the how resting. To hasten hence my heart urges, I seem to myself to be set between worlds, when all about me burnt the cairn fires. Then the ghost of her father dissolved to mist, and the barrow closed once more, and she was left in silence. But glinting in the moonlight was the blade of her birthright, which she had won through bold deeds and courage. 
Okay, goosebumps. Now, as the story goes, the curse does indeed come true. The sword brings about the death of her own son at the hands of her other son, who is in turn later killed on its point. And so Hervarth suffers the loss of both her sons and goes to her grave, no doubt wondering if it all was really worth it. Viking sagas were almost never happily ever after stories. Many a great hero finds his fate in a tragic demise. And here, we see Hervarth granted that same tragic but glorious end. The story does not treat her with kid gloves. It rewards her youthful arrogance with its just desserts, as it would any other prideful warrior. Hervarth was a warrior woman, but not just a warrior woman. She was, in the end, a warrior. Well, that's all for today, folks. Check out the Viking Berserker series on my other show, Dead Ideas, for a whole lot more like this. Music today is courtesy of Solus Composer. If you like what we're doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a barrel-busting shield maiden telling her ghost daddy what's up. I'll even draw someone you know if you'd rather pass on the favor as like a gift. Catherine Trader, our patron, had me draw her significant other, James, as a Viking lord with a snake wrapped around his neck. So whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome. I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. All right, I'll see you next time, folks. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.